welcome to this edition of the Alabama Historical Association's podcast program. I'm your host, Marty Olaf, and I talk with people who conduct interesting research and do interesting things concerning Alabama history. You can find out more about the Alabama Historical Association, a membership organization devoted to Alabama history, by pointing your browser at our website, www.alabamahistory.net. Our guest today is Dr. Hillary Green, a full professor at Davidson College, who has recently been an associate professor of history in the Department of Gender and Race Studies at the University of Alabama. She's the author of Educational Reconstruction, African-American Schools in the Urban South, 1865 to 1890, published by Fordham University Press in 2016, and is the series editor of Reconstruction Reconsidered by the University of South Carolina Press. But our interest today with Dr. Green is the project she has conducted at the University of Alabama called the Hallowed Ground Project. Dr. Green, thank you very much for joining us and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Hillary, tell us about the Hallowed Ground Project. The Hallowed Grounds Project began really when I arrived at the University of Alabama for my on-campus interview. I saw a marker, and that marker by the little round house that said, rented slaves, and talked about the Civil War period. And my curiosity was sparked, like, who were these rented slaves? And then I came to the University of Alabama and that marker helped me join the faculty because I knew that UA had changed. It was no longer the campus that was built by enslaved people. It was no longer the campus shaped by George Wallace. There was a department that had gender and race studies at the University of Alabama. And there's this marker talking about the Civil War that mentioned slaves on it. I arrived at the University of Alabama fall of 2014 thinking, oh, this is going to be a project of curiosity. When I have a break, I'm going to figure out who these rented slaves were. And then I started to teach. And in my second semester at the University of Alabama, actually, I can tell you the week in January of 2015, when the student made this comment in the form of a question. But Dr. Green, slavery did not exist here. Because I was curious, I did some groundwork at the digital collections at the University of Alabama. I pulled up one of the financial receipts that was digitized. And I used that into a teachable moment at the time, pointed out Basil Manley's name, who was on there, one of the enslaved people, the financial cost in there. But we talked about it in that moment. And then I left that class. And in that moment, I knew I could not have a black male student who was a junior thinking slavery did not exist at the University of Alabama. And then I took the campus tour where phrases like, sadly, we lost, talking about the Civil War, slaves were servants, and the surviving slave cabins were garden sheds. So I couldn't fault the student anymore. But in that moment, I'm like, we're walking the campus. I'm going to do this research. And the Hallowed Grounds Project was developed to be something to include in my teaching. And then it expanded beyond. So the way I envisioned it was this will be a three lectures in my class of 19th century Black history. The first lecture will be the context 
connecting the University of Alabama and some of those documents to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where I received my PhD, as well as the University of Virginia and how those two schools shaped the University of Alabama. The second lecture was gonna be a walk-in tour. And this is where going to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where there was the black and blue tour, doing my master's at Tufts University with Gerald Gill, who was a staunch uh, public historian. He did a lot with WGBHL Boston and documentaries, Eyes on the Prize, one and two. But he also walked us down the hill from Tufts to the Royal House. And we looked at slave cabins in the North. And I knew if I went outside and took us outside of the classroom, they would learn this history learn the signs, learn those spaces of geography of slavery, but also to get the heat in the, of slavery because I do these tours, it'll be August and you know how Alabama hot is August and we're sweating and also walk that grounds. Then the next lecture, process it with a short reflection paper. That's how the tour started. But then as I went on, I'm like, this is classroom. This is actually having lectures in class. This is incorporated into my teaching. This is actually doing some of those digital humanities works and getting primary sources that I could teach easily in my class by dropping a link in there or after people took the tour could learn on their own. It also meant developing a suggested readings list for people to read, but also to identify all the various collections at UA because I built this project purposely using UA's collections to tell UA's story, because I recognize my place, but also the student's place as the current UA community and the history in the making. How to use this and to normalize this history and also to the landscape that still exists so that I would no longer have students thinking slavery did not exist at UA, we had the safe space of the classroom. They walked and saw the geography that survives. And we could have a different type of conversation. It was that marker and intellectual curiosity in a student that launched all of this. <laughs> and when you say all of this, it's not just those three lectures in the classroom aimed at students. There's a bigger component to the Hallowed Ground project, isn't there? Could you describe that? Yes, there's two significant components. The first is the walk-in tour. I did my first practice tour in August during summer school. Then that fall in my 19th century Black history course, I started walking the campus with my students. Well, then they told their friends. They told other professors who taught intro to women's studies and intro to AFAM studies in the Department of Gender and Race Studies. They told their roommates. And then they told the community members. So I started giving requests for guest lectures in other classes. How did the Hallowed Ground Tour get its name? The Association for African-American Life and History, who developed the Black History Month themes, had Hallowed Grounds as its theme. And one of the first lines in there said, campuses and colleges. I was like, well, I'm talking about race. I'm talking about slavery. I'm talking about memory. Hallowed grounds make sense because we are walking on the hallowed grounds from slavery and other pasts are not talked about. So it went from race and slavery at the University of Alabama 
to the Hallowgrounds tour in this. And because I had the other components, I always saw the tour as part of the larger project. I started walking the campus. And from that point in 2015 to today, I have now walked the campus with over 5,400 people. And because I am one person, I had to develop an easy phone app that someone could do on their phone <laughs> because I couldn't fulfill all the requests because I'm still teaching. I'm still writing. I was still publishing. I was working on my first book and I couldn't do everything. So I developed an Adobe Spark version of the tour that anyone could do on their own. And then I did a Google My Map tour of it as well. I had briefly a paper version of it. And the reason why I had a paper version did I stop that because I thought about my parents who are elderly, who don't really have a smartphone, who wanted to walk the campus, but they are not going to have their phone in front of them. So I developed it for them. And in the end, now they have smartphones. The pandemic has changed everything. So I'm like, okay, I don't need paper anymore. And it's less flexible updates and changes. But that tour helped generate different types of things with the project. And one of the things that are really advanced and why it's not just the tour, but the project is members of the Black community of Tuscaloosa and other communities across the state started to reach out. Hey, we're visiting. Can you do a tour for us? What documents are there? And especially with the church and growing out the documents about slavery, the Civil War, but also after slavery with those who survived into freedom, the Tuscaloosa community writ large started asking for documents about their churches, the schools, and others. So it became this slavery, its abolition with April 4th, 1865, but what happened to the people after the Civil War? And that is why this project has blown and grew (laughs) from the tour to the classroom to a website that I'm now developing more that's expansive and publications. Because then I got requests for, I wanna teach this. Do you have any publications? So it's this community engagement in which me as the historian is listening to the community needs and plotting its course forward. In the end, more people are not only researching slavery at the University of Alabama, They're asking newer questions because now they have names. They have names connected to physical sites. They have names of people who survived. They now have a website where they can go on their own and find those digitized collections, but also the physical collections in full. They know also there's articles, including one that I did for the public historian and several in the works that they can read before they go on the tour, after the tour, and then learn from there. So when I say this project was inspired by curiosity and a student, it has grown beyond even my expectations of the project itself, that it continued to grow it even though I'm leaving the University of Alabama. The tours will continue through the Department of Gender and Race Studies, and I'm still publishing on it. I have five publications coming out within the next year and a half, just on the tour, the materials of the project with the various documents and the history part. And I will be developing a a Mecca S site, which is fancy word to say, it's gonna be a nice digital website with documents behind the scenes that people can look at, not just the documents of slavery, 
but after slavery and address the questions that a lot of people ask in the community of what happened to some of the people who survived. That is where I have three major stages of how I'm going to roll out the information. And while I, when, when I finish book two, which is not on campus history, even though campus history is at the end of it, I will be writing book three, which is on the enslaved people's experience at the University of Alabama after slavery, and then how it gets remembered on the campus post-desegregation. It's a phenomenal project. The way you've described it not only shows us how it grew organically, but also how you've laid it out. It sounds like it grew faster and larger than you had anticipated. Do you think that with your moving from the University of Alabama to Davidson, the department will be able to affect the rest of your vision in order to grow this project to a logical point? Yes, the project has been collaborative. One of the things is the collaboration tended to be from me with the community outside of UA. Those in town who've been trying to get this information for years. Now it means I can be at another institution, a collaborator with grants to pay students to do these tours, but also pay students both at Davidson and UA to build out the digital humanities site. So teaching those skills and that archival work in there as well. So it's not just the tours, but it's the building out the whole larger project and also bridging many ways, both town and gown relations and also institutional relationships that I think the department will be able to really affect and grow this vision out. It's not just the responsibility of strategic communications and Dr. Bell in and, and that office, but it's individual faculty, it's departments, it's those collaborations across the campus, but also across institutions that will help to build out this project into a more comprehensive way that people will not only come to this site that's grown both sides of the institutional line, but also modeling for other institutions doing this reconciliation work on slavery that you don't need to just be confined to your institution. You can have partnerships between institutions within the community and grow a project that is community-based, but that means it's gonna be harder. But the commitment of the department and the people who are doing the tour will help make sure that this project does not happen what other projects tend to happen at the University of Alabama when people leave. They just stop. I don't see this stopping at all. In fact, I see it growing and growing in a logical step in which it will be the digital humanities projects, the tours, plus the scholarship and the published scholarship, and then the classes of other faculty using this across the nation and across the UK as a site, this is what is possible. I'm so excited to see this development because I could never envision it, but it has grown to the point that I am very much sure that it will continue, this work will be continued. And Alabama, the state, but also the university will become a center for this type of research. I think Alabama doesn't get enough attention by scholarship. The Hallowgrounds Grounds Project has made you way a destination, a model, 
And I think right now it can grow and we can model that at other institutions as well. It sounds like you have passed the baton quite well. The collaborative nature of your project leads me to tell you and our audience that the Alabama Association of Historians is collecting public history projects into a Google map so that you can find all of these projects with good information and contact information. And I encourage any of our audience who knows about any public history projects, large or small, ambitious or narrow, to get in touch with the Alabama Association of Historians. You can actually contact me and I'll be happy to provide you with that link that goes not only for you, Dr. Green, but also people listening in. You've talked about wanting to have a series of three books, but let's go back just a little bit. And your first book in 2016 was Educational Reconstruction, African-American Schools in the Urban South, 1865 to 1890. Tell us a little bit about that. It was my mother who posed the question <laughs> for the project on how African-American schools after the Civil War grew. It came out of my dissertation. My initial dissertation topic was to look at Black responses to Klan violence around 1868, so around the early years there. On one of our daily phone calls, I was explaining what I was finding, and she was like, okay, so other than the Black church, was there anything that positive that came out of Reconstruction that survived into Jim Crow and beyond? And my response was, well, there's schools. And I didn't like how that response came out. I wasn't sure myself in that process. It became this focus like, no, it is the schools, but why the schools? So when I was doing this work, I did in that book, I did Richmond, Virginia and Mobile, Alabama. I called it a tale of two cities because Richmond had everything. They had the former Confederate capital. They had all the resources. Everyone wanted to go in and remake Richmond. Mobile was the scrappy city that was always fighting for everything. Arson, destruction, people doesn't want to be there. They're fighting for every little game. But at the end in 1890, both cities came to the same place. They were asking for, we want quality public schools. We want African-American teachers in those schools. We want black school board members. We need funded. It's not enough. And both cities were, up, when you look at the amount of funding they gave a year, they were at the top in their states. Richmond actually makes it into the national level of funding. How did two different cities, two different communities, and their vision for Black education right after the war is one of the reasons why education and the Black church are most successful things that come out of Reconstruction. At the end of that, I could say to my mother, who forgot asking me that question, <laughs> I'm like, it's the schools. But by doing that, it allowed me to develop how my other projects come in. It's usually a question that I can't answer. There's intellectual curiosity. I follow people. And for me, being able to trace people who were eight or nine, teen years to their death at the end and what they do and see them over life and shaping of a community. I tend to do community-based studies because I can follow communities because I'm a member of several communities. So I understand that on the ground rather than the top down. I'm like, okay, what? What's going on the ground when stuff happens? How is these everyday people who just came out of slavery, no money, 
no support, develop a system of public schools that get enshrined in state constitutions? How do they build these networks? And how do these two cities both collectively come upon, we want quality public schools and reach at the same ending point where in the beginning they were nowhere near each other. It was also my first introduction to coming to Alabama. I did a month long research trip as a grad student to Mobile. And then I did two weeks in Montgomery. It was one of those things that helped me even come to the University of Alabama because people were like, well, why, why come here? I'm like, my research is here. I picked Mobile because I was like, no one really talks about Mobile other than Mike Fitzgerald, who I knew, <laughs> and his many books about Mobile, um, Urban um, Emancipation, his other book in Alabama. But I'm like, of course, man, Bond wrote a book too in the late 30s, early 40s. What's going on education-wise reconstruction here? And I felt there was a hole. So I was like, well, this is great. And I have Richmond that has a lot of stuff published on it. This will be a nice contrast to talk about these two cities. That was one of the best things I did because it allowed me also to continue my trajectory as a scholar. And by looking at how Black Mobilians and those in Richmond did these schools, 1890 is now the end for a lot of people who are doing Black education because of the Blair education bill that fails. They're able to contextualize why Booker T. Washington comes up in that moment. But they also are able to see what everyday African Americans were able to succeed in doing during Reconstruction through the creation of public schools and not just churches. It just goes to show that Alabama is understudied. We have generations worth of research topics in Alabama history available. Tell us about this series, Reconstruction Reconsidered, with the University of South Carolina Press, for which you were one of the editors. Reconstruction as a period in history is understudied. It tends to be on the myths about Reconstruction of carpetbaggers, scalawags, Negro rule. This was a period of, it should not have happened this way. And violence, while there, the Klan was needed to overturn this mistake that was there, this tragic error. The Reconstruction Reconsidered series is to think about what are those Reconstruction topics that haven't been explored? Finding a home for people to do local histories or state studies or regional studies on the era. And the way we define Reconstruction is we take a more expansive view of Reconstruction. You can start with the wartime era and go up to about 1900. Jim Crow Constitution start coming in. We're like, okay, we can stop here. But how you define it and conceive it is more broad than the 1865 to 1877. And you don't just need to talk about the big federal policies. You can talk about these local stories. You can talk about these community struggles. You can talk about stuff that's been sitting in archives, but no one's been exploring because they didn't think it was going to be published. That has allowed for a re-examination of this period and development of new questions and content around it. We have a couple projects, one's like an anthology, talking about South Carolina and Reconstruction within a community of tied to Edgefield. Another one in the pipeline is about Grant by a scholar who's at Grant Papers at Mississippi State. So bringing in people who are the non-traditional historians too, but the more 
people who teach at teaching institutions, those who are doing this and not really get the time and the accolades, but developing those relationships between the editors, Jay Bright Morris and myself and Aaron Foley at the press and cultivating this relationship and cultivating this history because we have a lot to say about Reconstruction writ large. What I will hope happens with the series is that this will become a place for some of the Alabama scholarship that needs to be written. We are one of the newer series and I'm glad it's there because there's so much to be written about Reconstruction and to re-examine and to move away from the stuff published in the early 20th century the 30s and 40s, a lot of stuff you're like, okay, this topic, when's the last time it's been written? And you're like, that's a huge gap in time. A lot more sources have come online. Can we re-examine these old topics with new questions and new materials? If an author has an idea and they're listening to this podcast, can they get in touch with you about this series? Yes. Email in Aaron Foley at the University of South Carolina Press, and we will read over your proposal. We will work with you and even think about contracts and where it goes through, but we always decide and read together, like this will fit and this works. So email Aaron Foley at the press will be the best one. He's not in transition. He is definitely there, but definitely reach out. Great. Thank you so much for letting us know about that opportunity. And I hope that People listening to this will take that opportunity if they are doing that kind of research. Dr. Green, you have given us a lot to think about this hallowed ground project, which began so small with a couple of simple questions and has grown so large and looks like it's going to grow even larger, is truly remarkable well outside of the normal activities of even a research institution. Is there anything that I haven't covered that you'd like to speak to? No, I just want to say the big one is consider Alabama in your research. Consider the great individuals at the Alabama Department of Archive and History and smaller repositories at institutions. There's so much information that has yet to be written develop those topics and always consider the small questions might lead into life projects. And sometimes those small questions even deal with Alabama topics. So remember, Alabama matters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us today. This has been another edition of the Alabama Historical Association podcast program. Our music is the traditional tune, Whistle By, performed at City Stages in 1996 by James Bryan and Carl Jones. It's provided courtesy of the Alabama Folklife Association, which you can find on the web at alabamafolklife.org.